the past couple weeks, we've been talking about the grace, the wonderful grace of God, and about how really specifically how that, the grace of God, the, the riches that we get that are of no, that we haven't earned, they're just given to us by God because of his great love, his great mercy that he's shown upon us. And his desire is to transform lives. His desire is not just to see behavioral change, but to see real heart change and real head change. Because when those two places change, the rest of behavior takes, can change automatically. So many faiths that are out there today, we saw this overseas, We've, I've seen it for years as I've been talking to people they think it's all about how I live, how I live, how I live, how I behave every single day of my life. And that's, if I can be good enough, then God will be happy with me. To my neighbors, God will be happy with me. If I can really, my mother-in-law walks in the room, God will be happy with me. Maybe it's not your brother, maybe it's not your mother-in-law, maybe it's somebody else. But God is more, he's, he's not about this temporary changes that we think are justifiers to him. He wants long-term transformation in our lives. That's what he's about. That's what Jesus came to give us. That's what, when he died on the cross for us, that was prophesied thousands of years before that, back in the garden when Adam and Eve first sinned, and God made that first prophecy. I'm going to send a Savior. I'm going to send a Messiah, and he's going to save you from your sins. He's going to make a way to reconcile the world and all the people in the world back to God. That's his goal, is to reconcile this neighborhood, this city, this state, this country, this world, all the people in it, back to him, to have that relationship with him again. It starts with his meant about when the grace of God is in our lives, what does that look like? The second half of that is looking at in this looking at this transformed life is looking at it from the aspect of what how do we view ourselves and what is our purpose and what is our identity how do we view ourselves in the kingdom of God see how people view themselves and how they view their purpose in life and what they want to achieve in this life is probably one of the biggest issues from the college students I talk to in my car and as I'm out and about uh, high school students other 40, 50, 60, 70-year-old people I've talked to from time to time. Doesn't, doesn't matter what age. People are still always asking the same question. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Is, am I just here to put in 60, 70, 80 years of, on this, world, this earth and then die? And is that it? Or is there something more that we are to really accomplish? And the world likes to speak to us and communicate what it believes is the purpose you know the old saying out there, YOLO, you only live once, so get it all right now. Whatever money you want to make yourself happy. Because this is all there is. This life, once you're dead, you're in the grave, your body rots away, that's all there is. That's what the world teaches. Yeah, we know from reading God's word, this world, this life that we're living, is temporary. It is our physical forms will, will die off 
and they will rot away. But then one day we're going to get new bodies as God raises us up and takes his believers, his followers into heaven with him. And we'll get new bodies while I'll have a full head of hair again. I can't wait. Right, Mike? He's with me. We're going to be able to I'll, I'll have a nice six-pack again instead of a six-case. Um, it, it's going to be awesome. I can't wait to get that new body. But in the meantime, we're here living life. And why are we here? What is the purpose that God has given to us? Is it just to go to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week? To live 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years? Or in my grandmother's case, almost was out there praying and spending time with God. And then he, at the end of 40 days, he said, Hey, I'll take you up on this mountain. If you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms. <clears throat> he took him up on top of the temple and said, if you bow down to me, I'll let everybody worship you. If you throw yourself off of this, this pinnacle, don't worry, God's angels will catch you. Don't, and you'll make a name for yourself. He was trying to tempt Jesus' identity. And thankfully, Jesus didn't give in because he knew what his purpose was. He knew his purpose was to come to reconcile mankind. Didn't give in. Today, we see books, movies, TV shows, media bloggers, news outlets, politicians, and they're all trying to communicate to us what our purpose is, what our identity is, and trying to force us into their mold in some ways so they don't feel bad about their lifestyles. In some ways so they don't feel bad about the choices they've made in life as opposed to the choices that we're making in life to honor God and please Him with our every aspect of our lives. They want to force us into their mold of what they view as morality, what they view as humanity, what they view as the proper identity and purpose in life. And we have to look at Scripture, and more specifically today, we're going to look at the life of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look and see what was the identity that Jesus viewed as himself. What was it? When Paul's writing to the Colossians, he's trying to counteract a deceitful teaching at that time that called Gnosticism, where they said the flesh is evil, all that, we, all that is the spirit is good, so therefore Jesus didn't really have flesh in his body, he just came back as pure spirit, and anything, anything of the flesh is just do away with. And Paul's writing to let the church there in Colossae know that Jesus is real. He had a real flesh and bone body. He had a, he, yes, he was spirit as well, but he was also, everything about him was geared toward one end goal, one end result, and that is the reconciling of us. So we're going to look this morning at the, at the identity of Jesus and how he viewed himself and see how his, the view of Jesus should shape, his identity should shape our identity. Because once we view, if we are the children of God, if we are God's creation, and we are been, we're following him, and trying to honor him with every ounce of our being, knowing how Jesus viewed himself puts us on par, not that we're equal with Jesus, but his identity shows us how special we are to God as well. And that should raise our identity in our own eyes to knowing, man, God did this for me. God loved me so much that let us know that we have a true purpose in life, not just to go through this world. So look with me in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. As we read together about this awesome Jesus that we just sang about. 
says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through and to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This passage right here, as, Jesus, as Paul is writing, this is like, one of the early, the early churches, they didn't have hymns like we do today. We have maybe a hymn book or songs on the screen. They had songs that they quoted. And this was actually, that pastor right there was one of the things they quoted in their church. It was a poem. It was, it was a song that they sang about the preeminence, the awesomeness of Jesus. Of how great he is. How all things were created by him and for him. He had the preeminence. He had all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him to reconcile to himself all things. So to understand our identity, we first have to understand who Christ is. And that's what this passage right here kind of lays out. We're going to go through it real quickly here. to kind of lay out these, these ten points. And on the back of your bulletin, there's a, a spot there where you can write these in if you want. Number one says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. When the disciples were walking with Jesus, they were literally walking with God. He is the image. He's the mirror image. He was the picture of God in that world at that time. As they walked with, God, with Jesus, at first they didn't realize it. They thought he was just a rabbi. He was just a teacher. But eventually, when Jesus came to ask them, said, who, who, do, who do the people say I am? Oh, they think you're Abraham or Moses. They think you're one of the, the prophets. And he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Which literally, that means you are God in the flesh. You're not just a separate being, though God the Father and God the Son are separate entities. And how that works in God's, in God's kingdom, how they can be same and they can be separate at the same time, it blows my mind trying to figure it out. So I've stopped trying to figure it out because my little finite mind is a little 2 pea brain to figure out how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can all be one God. But I know the Bible teaches it. I, I don't try to explode my mind to try to justify it in my own mind. I know what the Bible teaches, and it teaches that you have God. And in the middle of it, you got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And somehow all three of them work in conjunction together. So here you have the image of the invisible God, the disciples walking physically with God through the wilderness, eating with Him, praying with Him, going to the cross, and how God physically died for us on the cross, the physical, the image of the invisible God appeared to mankind. Christ is the creator, verse 16. He's the creator of this universe. And John 1, 1 says, All things were created by Him and for Him. All, nothing was made that was made without Him. Jesus was the Creator. God spoke it into existence. Jesus was the Creator of all this that we look around. Every tree, every plant, every rock, every molecule, every atom, every child that's in our midst, Jesus is the Creator of. He created us in this world for His glory. 
He, came, he created this world so we could have a place to live, but ultimately He created this world and us so that He could glory in us and so He could enjoy us and we could enjoy Him. He's the Creator. Number three, He's the glue that holds all of creation together. Without the hand of God on this place, all the molecules and atoms explode. He's the glue that holds all those things together. It says, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. Number four, He's the clue for understanding the world and its creation. As much as our world, as our politicians, as our educators, our scholars try to explain this, without understanding it in the context of what God has done, we miss 99%. When you try to explain this world, how it came to, into existence, and what our purpose is here, without including God in the midst, into the equation, we miss 99% of the reason. And that means when you miss that much, you, you got it wrong in the test. Without God in the midst, we miss it. Verse 17 says there, He is before all things, and in Him all things are held together. He was before this creation. He was before us. He was before this universe. He was pre-existent. Before anything in this universe was created, there was God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. He was there all by himself. No angels, no demons, just God. And it pleased him to create all that we see, all that we experience, it pleased him to create the angelic host. It pleased him to create this world. It pleased him to create suns, moon, and stars. It pleased him to create us so we might enjoy him also. Number five, he's the head of the church, verse 18. He is the head of the church. It says very quick, very clearly, he is the head of the body, the church. He is my boss. He is the head of the church. We are simply, he alone is worthy as our head. He is our our liege. And to him, we offer allegiance to no one else. Above and beyond, he is it. Number six, he is the premier figure of all creation. In everything, he might be preeminent. He is the premier figure. There's no one else more important than him. Number seven, he is the one who defeats death. Number eight, Christ is the fullness of God. Verse 19 says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He wasn't just part God and part man. He was fully God and fully man. Complete in all the fullness of God dwelt in him. So literally when he was walking the earth with the disciples, when 2,000 years ago when he was in, in Israel walking around she's alright in the flesh walking around all of his knowledge he said God the Son doesn't know this, God the Father does. Am I coming back? God the Father knows. He willfully set aside some of that knowledge he willfully humbled himself to become as a servant for you and I so we might be able to relate to him. God didn't need to relate to us. 
He came as a servant. He came as a human being, limited himself in, this, in that fleshly body so that we could relate to him, so those that were in Israel at that time could relate to him. He didn't need to do that. He desired to do it for us. All the fullness of God. Christ is the one, number nine, Christ is the one who reconciles creation to himself by his death on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he humbled himself, he hung there on the cross. At that moment, all of our sins were taken upon himself. He looked down through, through history, he saw Joe Sosa. He said, that man needs Jesus. He saw Joe, he saw all the sins in his life. He said, I'm going to die for Joe. I'm going to need to have their sins forgiven. Period. And so as he hung there on the cross, our sins piled up, piled up, piled up. Now, none of us had been born yet. None of us had even, our ancestors hadn't even come on the scene. And yet God looked down through history and says, while we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. I love that verse. While we were still in our sins, Christ died died for us. He reconciled himself to us, to God. He reconciled us to himself. Let me get that right. He reconciled us to himself because he loved us, because he desires that relationship. When Adam and Eve in the, in the garden sinned and that relationship was broken because of one simple sin, they ate the fruit that God said don't eat. That's all it was. It wasn't like they went out and killed anybody. It wasn't like they cut down, the, cut down a tree. It wasn't like they did anything major in our minds. They had simply told God no. So I know you told us not to eat of that fruit, but we're going to sneak it behind our back and we're going to need to try it anyway. Satan had tricked them. From that point on, their relationship was broken. And so Jesus came to reconcile us to himself in that relationship, to heal the broken humanity, to make peace between God and his creation. Number 10, verse, chapter 2, verse 9 says this, For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Christ is fully God and fully man. We just mentioned that a second ago. He is fully God and fully man. Not part God, part man. Not 50%, 50%. He is 100%, 100%. And again, how that works, my little finite pea brain mind does not fully understand it. How God can be three in one, how God can be fully God and fully man in the, in, in the, in the body of Jesus, I heard God says. My brain can't fathom how you can be. You can't have 105% in a coffee pot. If you go 100 you're going to have overflow. You're going to have a spill over. You can only go so much. But yet Jesus was the 200% God-man. Fully God, fully man in the one body. That's the identity. That is who Jesus is. That is who he still is today. All those things we just mentioned, that is who Jesus is. And taken all together, they lay out Paul's purpose and that of the church. Paul says, this is my purpose. In chapter 1, verse 25, he says this, I have become, it's the church, a servant, according to God's commission that was given from, to me for you to make the word of God fully known 
the mystery hidden for ages and the generations, but now revealed to the saints. This is my purpose, to make known to the church the mystery hidden for ages to all mankind. To make known the mystery of who God is. For years and years and years and years, the eyes of man have been blinded. God comes on the scene in the body of Jesus. In the New Testament church, they still had to have faith and trust in God 200% in Jesus, fully God. So Paul says, this is who, God, who Jesus is. This mystery, hidden for ages and for generations, and now revealed to his, sense, to his saints to help us fully understand who Christ is. That is my purpose. That is my goal. And as he went out, as his eyes were opened, remember, he was a persecutor of the early church. He was a persecutor of the saints. He was a persecutor of all those because he hated them. He thought they were going against the word of God. He thought they were despising and setting aside the word of God, the Old Testament law. And so Paul was doing his part as a follower of Jehovah to protect the Old Testament law. And on the, on the way to Damascus to go and arrest some other believers, Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting my church? And he says, who are you, Lord? I'm the Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And his, his eyes were opened. And, the, and all that was there for us all that was, he saw, and all of a sudden put two and two together. He connected all the dots in the Old Testament, and he saw how they were all pointing to Jesus. All the Old Testament saints, all the prophecies, all the laws, they all pointed to Jesus. All pointed to Jesus. That's why the Old Testament is still so valid today. It's not something we look at and go, oh man, I got to read Leviticus. I got to read Numbers. I got to read the Old Testament. Oh man. Look at it, when, when you read through the Old Testament, look at it from the standpoint of all these things, all these laws, all these prophecies, all these things that we dread and despise about the Old Testament, they're all pointing to Jesus. They're all pointing to a Savior. And Paul says, I came to explain this mystery. And the mystery is that God's purpose through Christ is to reconcile all of creation to himself, not just Israel, but all of creation. That is the mystery that he came to proclaim. As he, as he proclaimed, as he talked to his Israelite brothers, he says, to share with as many people as possible, do all what Christ did. Verse 14 there of Colossians chapter 1 says, In him we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, we have that redemption. Not in our good works. Not in my faithfulness. But in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So that's all good and well. That's who Jesus was. That was his identity. That was Paul's purpose. But what does that really mean for us? Okay, What does that really, really, really mean for us? as followers of God. See, Christ came to provide life because of God's great love for us. Jesus came to provide life because of God's great love for us. 
going all the way. Jesus' love conquered death and sin and hate. Peace between humanity and Christ is the clue to show us just how much God loves you. When Jesus died on the cross, he lived his life for 33 years and he died for you and me. He did everything necessary so that we would not have to do anything but believe and trust. He did it all. There's nothing we could do to justify ourselves anymore to God. Jesus did it all on the cross just to show us just how much God loves. He did it on our behalf. His love is extravagant. He sent His own Son to die for us. You know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten or His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. You've seen Banner Man at, the, at all the football games are holding up John 3.16 or uh, down at the parades or wherever they're at, John 3.16, John 3.16. Everybody knows what that verse is. They've heard the verse. They may not be able to quote it from memory, but everybody, at least in America, kind of knows what that verse says. When they see that sign, it's a reminder, oh, God loves me. They may not fully understand it, but God sent His own Son to die for us. Luke 15 has three parables there that we're not going to read this morning, but three parables that kind of explain the love of God in this way. The first one is the, one, the story of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost sheep, how this one sheep goes missing. So the shepherd leaves 99 behind to go in search of the one lost sheep. And when he finds him, he brings him home. In our economy, in our way of thinking, the sheep should have stayed with the rest of the sheep. The sheep should have stayed with the rest of the flock, right? And his love leaves behind those who are safe, and he goes in search of them. He says, just so I tell you, the more there will be more joy in heaven over her who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God went out in search of me. God went out in search of you to find us, to bring us home. Because then, once we, once we come back to God, once we humble ourselves, we say, God, I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness of sins. I need you. There is rejoicing in heaven, the Bible says, over that one person who bows their knee and says, God, I submit myself to you. I believe that you died for me on the cross, that you took my sins upon yourself, and I give myself to you. The Bible says there is rejoicing in heaven, more rejoicing in heaven for that one act than there is for what's going on here this morning and over the rest of us who come here and worship. The one person who can recommit, who commits their lives to following Jesus, there is rejoicing. Then the story of the lost coin. The widow woman, she, she's got ten coins and she loses one and she sets her other ten. Scours her whole house looking for that lost coin. It's precious to her. She goes, she looks under the cupboard, she looks under the rugs, looks all over until she finally finds it. Then look what it says there in verse 10. It says, just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. She takes, brings all of her neighbors in and says, look, I found the lost coin. I found it. And they rejoice and celebrate together. 
And then the story of the prodigal son, of the lost son, about the son who comes to the dad and says, Dad, you're wealthy. I'm tired of working here in, the, in this for you and in this house. Go ahead and give me my, my inheritance now. And the dad gives him his inheritance. The son goes out and squanders it, loses everything. Even those who were his friends abandoned him to where now he's taking a job with a pig farmer. And he says, the pigs eat better than I do. If I could just eat the pods that the pigs are eating. Yet he can't because that's for the pigs. And then he rises up and he says, you know, even the servants in my dad's house live better than I am right now. If I just go back to my dad and say, Dad, I messed up. Let me be a servant in your house. I don't need my inheritance. You don't have to call me your son. I'll just be a slave. I'll be a servant in your house. Just let me work for you because they make their living better than I am right now. He goes back to his dad. Verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and you put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And you bring the fatted calf and you kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. We're reconciled again because the widow woman and her coin up in heaven. Because we're one person who commits themselves to God. This world wants us to think that we've got it all together. That we don't need God. That I can just work my 40, 50 hours a week. That I don't really need God. That I'm okay. I'm better than my neighbor. That's like rotten fruit, comparing yourself to rotten fruit. We all need God. We all need the forgiveness of Jesus. Ephesians 1.5 says this, His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into His own family by sending Jesus Christ to die for us. He did this because He wanted to. I love that. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into His family. From the very beginning of time, God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin when He created And He already had the plan in place. He didn't just... All of a sudden, go well. I guess I, they messed up. I guess I got to figure something out. He knew it was going to happen. His unchanging plan has always been for Jesus Christ to come, so He could adopt us back into His family. I like the ESV ends that. He says it gave Him great pleasure to do so. We give God great pleasure when we submit ourselves and humble ourselves to become His child again. You know that you are truly, deeply loved by your Creator? You are deeply, deeply loved by your Creator. From the beginning of time, he looked down and he saw Mike and said, I want Mike in my family. I want Hanisa in my family. I want David in my family. And he reached down and made a plan for us. We are deeply loved 
He went out of his way to reconcile us, to redeem us. He didn't need to. Would it have been easier for him just to snap his fingers? Yes. I mean, if I'd been God, that's what I'd done. Yeah, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to take on all that pain and the suffering. I'm going to snap my fingers and make it okay. I'll, I'll make the world fine again. We'll get rid of sin just like that. But God's unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family. See, as God's beloved, our true purpose is revealed that we might make known God's love to the world. That is our purpose. We're here to glorify God and enjoy Him forever and to make known His love to the world around us. If we just keep that secret to ourselves, what if somebody had the, the answer to the coronavirus right now? They, they had all the, everything that was going on. They had that little the vaccine or they had the cure to it and they kept it to themselves. What would we think about that person? All these people have died and they've kept the secret themselves. <laughs> we think that person was evil. We think that person was of no value, of no worth. We have the answer to the virus of sin. How can we keep it to ourselves? We have the answer that people need. How can we keep it to ourselves? Our true identity is that we are God's beloved and we are to go out and share His love with the world around us. Colossians 1, 27 and 28 says it this way, For God wanted them to know that the riches of glory, that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret, that Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance for sharing His glory so that we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom God has given to us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship with Christ. See, as God's children, as God's children, as God's beloved, our purpose is to share that truth with all those around us. I want us to understand how vitally important it is for us to not just be satisfied, to be satisfied with just coming here, to be satisfied with our lives. When there are so many around us, our neighborhoods around us, at your job around you, those that come in contact with you, that God has placed in your midst in your connection circle. He's placed into a circumstance where you and you alone can share the truth. And it doesn't mean that you got to pull out your 90-pound King James Bible and walk them through every step. Sometimes it's just speaking a word of truth. Sometimes it's just talking to them. Sometimes it's saying just a, a comforting word or sitting there praying with them. Getting them on that next step of the journey. That's all it is. That's part of what we're going to be talking about tonight in our in our in this uh, making your case for Christ study, learning how to share that truth, learning how to put yourself out there, learning what to say and how to say it, so that we're we have the the ammunition inside, we have the uh, the ability and, and the knowledge 
be able to talk to somebody and not feel funny about it. See, our identity is found in Christ and in His work, not in my work. As He has revealed the love and glory of God to the world, so we too find our identity in making His glory known to the world. That is our purpose. That is why we exist. So when you begin praying about what college to go to, when you pray about what job to take, what major to go into, or what job to take after college, what, when you start praying about who to marry and where to move, all those things are bound up in our purpose. We think, hey, I'm just going to throw, the, throw them out there on the table and pick and choose. Every single decision we make in life ought to be grounded and based in God and say, God, this is my purpose. If my purpose is to honor you and to glorify you and to speak truth, speak your truth into the world, I need to make sure everything, all those steps leading up to that that are involved in that are also bathed in prayer that I'm doing and going where God wants me to go as well. 